some of you, I, I know you, you don't lie because you're, you're, you're good Christian people, but sometimes I question the truth that is coming out because you tell me I've never preached a bad sermon in my life and I know that ain't entirely true because there's times that I'm up here preaching and I kind of confuse myself. So if I'm getting confused, some of y'all have to be. I know some of y'all are taking notes. And so since I'm the one with the mic, I went back and sat down as I began to study for the next part of Book of James. And I said, you know what, I need to just go back. And so if you'll give me a moment, and, and it's not going to be very long, I want to give you a brief rundown of what we talked about last, uh, last Wednesday. The book of James is one of those books that we tend to know snippets out of. We can know about, you know, the, the count it all joy when you meet trials. We know things like the tongue, you know, it's like the rudder of a ship or, or a horse. you got to bridle it or the rudder can turn the ship even though it's small and so can the tongue. And, and so we know some of those, but very seldom do we ever put it all together. Kind of like the book of Hebrews. Everyone seems to know Hebrews chapter 11. But when you put that in context with all of Hebrews, it's not that it changes it, but it makes it that much more powerful. And the book of, he, uh, book of James, rather, the book of James, I have seen in several different places in my study that they call it the Proverbs of the New Testament. Because there are some books that are chock full of doctrine, where you've got to, you know, you've got to search it out, you've got to research it. There's some books that contain history. That would be like the book of Acts. The book of Acts when you read the book of Acts, it ought to be making some sort of a movie in your head. You ought to see it flow. You ought to see it go. It was real events, real people, real things. It's a historical account. But then you get the book of James that becomes one of those books that just simply says, this is how you ought to live. You don't have to dig very deep. You just sort of kind of need to follow it. And if you do, your life would be that much better. It's a book that practically teaches us that living for God is a continual process that ought to lead us to maturity. We use the term born again or new birth, and that is absolutely a good term. In the book of Hebrews and other places, it talks about new babes in Christ. But we ought not stay new babes in Christ. Just as we don't want any of our babes, and, and I, I see, uh, um, I'm not the wrong one, which one is that one? That's Sadie. It was not the one in my mind that the brain was there. But we have Sadie here, and she's cute, and, and uh, I love watching them talk and grow. But we don't want Sadie to stay like that uh, as she grows. I mean, you might say that, but if Sadie was 15 years old and you're still having to burp her and feed her, there would be a major issue going on. And the same is true with our walk with God. You have to grow as you walk with God in maturity and in truth. And so uh, we begin to look, and so if you want to, if you want to follow, I'm not going to read every verse until we get to where I want, until we get to today's lesson, but um, in, in the, in the uh, first part of J James chapter 1, th there's two things that, that we're going to catch. There's trials on the outside that affect us from the outside, and there's temptations that affect us that comes from the inside. And so, uh, as you get to chapter or, or to chapter one, verse two, it says, "Count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds, because you need to understand that the trials that you face are there to to do something inside of you to help you grow." 
Verse 3 says it perfectly. Verse 3 says, we know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Listen to me. Your faith will always find a place to be tested. If you say, I believe in God, and I believe he can heal, and I believe he can deliver, and I believe he can provide, and you've never had that tested, then I'm going to question your faith. I say things like, I know the Lord's a healer, and then I deal with sickness, or, or sickness in family. Or I would say, I know he's a provider, and then I'm going to have a place in my life where I've got to either put up or shut up. I've either got to say, yes, he can provide for my needs, or I've got to say, it really didn't matter. See, here's the, the difference. God will test you to bring out the best of you. Satan will tempt you to bring out the worst of you. That's a real good way to remember it. And so uh, that trying, that testing, another way to, to translate the words in the Bible, like right here it says the trying of your faith worketh patience. That word trying, another way you can translate it is as approval. That it's, it's the way Peter said, and some of this is review. Peter said, 1 Peter 1, 7, that the trial of your faith being much more precious than of gold that perisheth. And we talked about how you, you, the, 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 the miner would find some gold in his mine. And he wouldn't take all the gold out, but he would take a sample of it and take it to the assayer's office. And the assayer would tell him how pure that gold is. The same is true with the testing and with the trials. It's proving us. It's helping us mature in our faith and our walk with God. And we know, because if you have kids, it's the easiest way to know it. We know that immature people are impatient people. That's why many times the Bible links impatience and unbelief. Which is why you and I, when trials come, learn to wait patiently on the Lord. And I'll tell you that if you'll wait on Him, He'll never fail you. He'll never leave you high and dry. It may not be the way you thought it was going to happen, but God will lead you through. There, there's a few things that need to happen in order for you to let that trial in your life work to its fullest potential. The first one is, we called it the, you know, let, that surrendered will. It's why uh, we're verse chapter, or verse 4, James, we're in James chapter 1, verse 4 and then 9 through 12, it said, And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And so you've got you, you've to know this. And I, I, I still struggle sometimes because we're human. But you've got to learn to let God work in your life. Have you ever had an issue, you know, maybe you were trying to do something, uh, any, if you were trying to work on the car or you were trying to put a puzzle together or Legos together, whatever it may be, and somebody came up and they were trying to tell you what you should do and you got mad at them and told them to leave you alone? Thank you for some of you being honest. Thank you. I appreciate that. Yep. Have you ever gotten mad and they left you alone and then later you realized you really needed their advice? Yep. Okay. A few of those. Some of you are still obstinate. I'm talking to you. I'm preaching to you right now. <laughs> God will never force himself in your life. But when those trials come, sometimes God will just kind of hang out and say, do you need me yet? Do you need me yet? Can I work in your life? And sometimes we go, no, no, I got this. I'm good. I can handle it. And then the wheels come off and we go crashing and burning and all of a sudden we're hollering and screaming, okay, God, you can help me now. You got to learn to let your life, submit your life and his will to, or your will to his testing.
God cannot help you build your, your Christian maturity. God cannot mold your character unless you let him. The second thing in that is ask. Uh, verse 5 says, if any man lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given to him. It's that, it's that, whoops, sorry, I turned the page too much. Let me, let me go back. It's the, it's the, uh, oh no, I did do it. Sorry, my, we'll get this in a moment. So let and then ask. Ask is a believing heart. And so uh, you need to ask the Lord for wisdom. When a trial comes, you need to ask the Lord, God, help me see as you see. And I want you to go back and look at all the places in the, wor- in the word that you can think of where, where God was trying to prepare someone. Thirteen years, Joseph was either in a, a, uh, uh, a jail or he was at Potiphar's house or he was, he was somewhere. Thirteen years, God worked before he could allow him to uh, come up to the second in command in Egypt. For, for Abraham, there were 25 years that God worked in Abraham's life before that promised son came. Moses was 40 years in the desert before God could use him. Even the disciples had three years, maybe three and a half years possibly of training that God was leading them. So when you have that trial that comes, say, Lord, help me understand what you're trying to do. Don't let me get bitter. Don't let me get mad. Let me see, Lord, what are you trying to do in my life? Uh, one person said that wisdom is using knowledge rightly or correctly. We can have a lot of knowledge but not know how to use it. And so it is that when the trial comes, we say, Lord, grant me wisdom and understanding so I can deal with the trial. The second thing we talked about was the trials are, are those, those things that push against us on the outside. But temptation comes from the inside. A mature person learns how to be patient when the trials come. But in those trials, in those testings, those are sent by God. But if we're not careful, if we get a wrong attitude or we get a wrong understanding, well then the Satan kind of jumps in and he starts bringing us into that temptation. And those temptations of Satan and from our fallen nature comes and James wanted to help us know how to deal with both of those. And there's a reason why James connects trials and temptations. It's because if we're not careful, the trials of life, whether they're from God or whether it's just life itself, the trials, if we're not careful, and and remember I said you got to ask and use that wisely. Lord, give me wisdom. If you don't use wisdom and the trials come... Sometimes the devil says, hmm, this would be a great place for me to try to move Brandon away from his trust in God. The devil begins to speak into our lives, and so when those circumstances become difficult, there are moments, if we're not careful, we will complain against God, and we will question his love, and we will resist his will. And at that point, Satan comes in, and he he tries to lay out a perfect way of escape. And that temptation comes. Again, when, when the, the promise of, of Abraham, you're going to have a child, you'll be the father of many nations. What was the trial? Years went by, no child was produced. His wife is feeling that brunt of it. He's feeling that brunt. And so Satan sneaks into the house, whispers in her ear and says, you know what, I've got a way we can give you a son. 
And the temptation proved too great for both of them to handle. And Ishmael was born. But we know, I mean, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to realize temptation is bad. Don't fall to temptation. And so James says, let me give you some ways you can not fall when temptation comes. The first one is consider God's judgment. This is all kind of a review. Verse 13, let no man say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted with evil. He himself tempts no one, but each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. And when desire, when it has conceived, it brings birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, bringeth forth death. Don't be deceived, my dear beloved. That temptation leads to sin. Sin leads to death. And so the best way to avoid temptation is to know where that temptation is going to lead you. And so that is, here's the progression of sin. And, and this comes from Warren Wiersbe and, and, and his Bible uh, exposition commentary. I like the way he has three words, that start, or four words that start with D. This is the progression of sin. The first one is the desire, that's lust. The second one is the deception, that Satan baits us. If the lust is the, is the bait, what's always under a bait? A hook or a trap. And so Satan says, if I can entice you, if I can get your desires moving, then I can deceive you and you'll grab hold of that and then I've hooked you. Lust is appealing. There will always be a sharp hook waiting underneath. That deception, when we are deceived, then it leads to disobedience. See, lust is emotional. Lust is, uh, it's all part and parcel of how we feel. Well, uh, you know, lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, all of that. But lust, when it conceives, it takes it out of the, uh, it takes it out of the, the, the emotion. It takes it out of the crime of passion. There really is no such thing as that. And it brings it to the intellect, and you have to willfully disobey. Have we all been tempted? Absolutely. Have you ever had something you really wanted and couldn't have it and, that, and that, that lust began to burn? Absolutely. But you better be careful that you don't take hold of the bait that Satan brings. And then you make up your mind. I wish you'd listen to me right now. Nobody accidentally sins. That is one of the greatest lies from the devil that he's told. You don't accidentally sin. There is no crime of passion in God's eyes. There is no sin that you can get to heaven and plead insanity by and say, well, it just kind of overtook me and happened. No, no. It's disobedience, which is willful. And that disobedience to God's word and God's command ultimately has an ending in spiritual death. And so if you want to avoid temptation... Consider the judgment of God. It's not, it shouldn't be the strongest thing in your life. As a child, I didn't sin, or well, I did sin, but as a child, there were times I didn't want to sin, Sister Sponsor, because I didn't want to go to hell. Anybody, have you ever not sinned just because you didn't want to go to hell? Yes. But that's not the strongest reason that ought to be in your life. It's an immature reason. A child may obey you just because they don't want to spank him. But that ought not be the mature response. The second one is, you want to avoid temptation? Consider the goodness of God. 
The Bible says in verse 17 that every good and perfect gift is from above. It comes down from the Father of lights of whom there is no variation nor shadow that is due to change. And, and I wrote this. I have big bold letters. This is key. I've got it highlighted in my notes. One of the greatest tricks that the enemy uses, and the longer I pastor, we're going on our, our uh, uh, ninth year this year of pastoring. I've got four and a half years of of youth pastoring. I've got three, about three, three and a half years of, of traveling and evangelizing. And then before that, I just was there. I've learned this. Satan loves to try to convince you and I that God's holding out on you. A trial comes, something happens, and all of a sudden in your mind, I gotta blame God. That and Satan says, See, he didn't love you. See, he doesn't care for you. See, everything pastors ever preached goes out the window when you're in a trial. And I know this because at the very first sin, it was present. Satan hits Eve up and says, If God really loved you, you could eat of this tree. If God really loved you, he wouldn't have these rules. When Satan tempted Jesus, he, he said, if, if your father really loved you, he wouldn't let you be hungry in this time of fasting. And, and I want to tell you, though, right now, the goodness of God is an incredible barrier against the wiles of temptation. Because if God is good, I don't need anything else. You know that verse that says he sticketh closer than a brother? That verse that says I've never seen the righteous forsaken nor a seed begging bread? Am I going to go through trials? Absolutely. Is my boat going to be rocked in a storm? Absolutely. But this I know, he's not going to leave me hanging. And when you get that in your mind, then I don't need anything else to satisfy me. God is good. Warren Wearsby said it's better to be hungry in the will of God than to be full outside the will of God and once Satan begins to try to convince you that because of the trials and now the temptation once Satan begins to tempt you that 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 you need to doubt the goodness of God what Satan does is say God doesn't love you but I love you look at what I can offer Look what I can bring. Look what I can satisfy. And sooner or later, those natural lustful desires of the fallen nature inside of us begin to reach out for the offers of Satan. And that's why God promised or God told the children of Israel in Deuteronomy 6. He warned Israel, Israel, when you get to the promised land, don't you dare forget the goodness of God. When everything's doing good, don't forget the goodness of God. There's four facts that James presents to us. First is God only gives good gifts. If it's good, it's from God. If it's not, it ain't. The way that he gives is good. The second clause that you can read there says that it's in every act of giving. And all of us have probably received a gift with the wrong motive before. Someone's handed you a gift, but you knew there was something there was either strings attached or there was something behind it. And the value of that gift becomes diminished by the way it's given. But I can tell you this, when God gives, you can understand, you can just know beyond a shadow of a doubt, He gives because He loves you and He gives because He's gracious. 
And he gives constantly. We, we use the word cometh down, that present participle. It keeps on coming down. You don't have to look back and say, well, God was good to me when I was younger. No, if God was good to you when you were younger, God's still good to you right now because God doesn't change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And that was the fourth thing he gives there. And again, something we read was that God's gifts are always better than Satan's bargains. You get what you pay for. But then the third one, and this is where I want to get to, to the lesson today. The third thing that is a barrier uh, from, from, from temptation. The first barrier was to look ahead and see the consequences of sin. The second one was to look around and see how good God has been to you. But the third barrier, and we'll read if you have James chapter 1 verse 18, it says this. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. In this third barrier to temptation, God says, I want you to look within yourself and realize you've been born again and you've got a new nature and a new lease on life. Old things passed away, all things are become new. Now watch this, earlier when James, what did James say? James says that, that, that uh, when a man is tempted and then lust when it is conceived, that's a birth. So James used the picture of, of that lust going to sin, he used it as a birth picture. But he also uses it to explain how you and I can have victory over sin. A new birth. Lust, when it has conceived, bringeth forth sin. Sin, when it is finished, or sin, when it is fully grown, bringeth forth death. Well, can I tell you again uh, what, what John said in chapter 3 when he went to Nicodemus and Jesus, or rather in John, Jesus said, except a man be born of the water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of heaven. What he was saying was, you must be born again. If sin births, or if lust births sin, and sin when it's fully grown bringeth death, and I'll tell you right now, if you'll have a new birth experience, and when that new birth experience is fully grown, you won't have a death, but you'll have eternal life. I love how God's word works like that. There's some incredible characteristics of the, this new birth. Number one, it's divine. It's not a human birth. Nicodemus himself said, well, how can I be born again? Do I have to somehow enter my mother's womb again? And Jesus said, no, no, that which was born of the flesh is the flesh. But we're talking about that which is born of the spirit. It's a divine birth. And when God is in control of that one, see, we're all sinners because Adam made a mistake. We're all sinners because man messed up. But I can be saved because God has provided my salvation. It's the work of God. And that salvation, it's so gracious. That amazing grace, how sweet the sound. You didn't earn it. You don't deserve it. But God said, I will have the opportunity for you to be born again simply because I love you. Now, yeah, there's some things we got to do. We need to repent, and there's a baptism in water that needs to happen. But, but at the end of the day, none of that guaranteed your salvation. That's just opening up the present he hands you. But 
You're born again, that, that new birth. You're not born again because of your relatives. You're not born again because of, of, of even, you know, you come to church or your religion. But that new birth is simply the divine, gracious work of God. And the best way for that new birth to be active and, and for you to get to that place where you can open that gift is to realize that it comes through the word of God. First Peter Chapter 1, verse 23 and 25, you, you can see it, but this is what it says. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. God chooses this time not to write on the wall. God chooses this time not to whisper in everybody's ear. God has provided you his word, and it hasn't changed. And so it is that this the more you get into God's word, the more it leads and guides you to truth and the more you realize that he's there and the more you realize he's gracious and he loves you and that he died for you and the gospel begins to come alive until you get to the place where you can accept what God has for you. And that birth, that new birth, it's the finest birth in the whole world. In the Old Testament, and, and we talked about this, I'm trying to remember when it was, maybe Sunday morning. I think it's when we talked about the first fruits. But in the Old Testament, they didn't have a lot of money, especially at the, at the earlier parts. It was a bartering system. You had what you made or grew or raised. And so it was in the Old Testament that they were called to bring the first fruits of their labors. If they had a cow, the first calf that that cow would have, they would give it to the Lord. They would bring it to the tabernacle. Every harvest they would have, they would take the very first harvest or very first parts of that harvest, that grain, before they made any bread out of that and they would bring it in. It's called the first fruits. It was, it was a, a way to, to, it was very meaningful, those first fruits. Later, Proverbs chapter 3, verse 9 says, Honor the Lord with thy substance and with the first fruits of all thine increase. And so they would tell you that what they brought to God first was the greatest thing they could bring because they gave it to God first. It had to be without spot. It had to be without wrinkle. You know, they, they didn't go pick the tomatoes that had all the big brown spots that you wouldn't need anyway. That's not how it worked. They went and picked the brightest and best and they went and gave it to the tabernacle. Can I tell you today that the Bible, the Word of God says in verse 18 that we're the first fruits of all of His creation. That means you and I, we're pretty special. Now you say, but, but wait a second, I'm not the first fruits. I understand. We're not the very first ones. Adam and Eve were the first ones. But all throughout the Bible, God rejected the firstborn and accepted the secondborn. He accepted Abel and not Cain. Isaac and not Ishmael. Es or Jacob and not Esau. And I'll tell you today that your first birth, he rejects that. But that new birth experience that we got when you knelt down in an altar and repented of your sins and were filled with the gift of the Holy Ghost and you were baptized in the precious name of Jesus, that higher birth means you've got a better life after. There's something great that comes. And can I just tell you right now, and, and I'm going to quote from, from Warren Wearsby for this one. He said, for this reason, it's beneath our dignity to accept Satan's bait or desire sinful things. Why? I've been born again. Now, I know sometimes that's easier said than done. But man, if we could get that in my mind, Satan, you don't have any more control over me. I've been born again. I've been sanctified. I've been justified. And that new birth 
It's that new birth that helps me overcome temptation because the Bible says that old things passed away. That means my old nature and my old desires. And so because of that, I can be a victor. There was a little kid in Sunday school one day, not ours, but he, he said simple, he said, there's two men that live in my heart, the old Adam and Jesus. And when temptation knocks at the door of my heart, somebody has to answer the door. And if I let Adam answer the door, I'm going to sin. But if I let Jesus answer the door, I'm going to win. That's a pretty good, easy way to understand it. But that new nature requires a diet. That's why we read the Word of God. That's why you got to be strong. The Bible says that new birth, that Word of God gives us strength. It nourishes us. Matthew 4, 4, Jesus said it best, while in the midst of a temptation. Man shall not live by bread alone, but from every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. And so if you'll read your word, you can overcome because you've been born again. Don't let anybody tell you that, that you can... That, that, that if you sin, it's anybody else's fault. You ever had to get, get a kid in trouble? And they'll say, oh, Johnny made me do it. I think sometimes God looks at us and we say, oh, this happened and this happened. But when you sin, you have no one to blame but yourself. There's no other way around it. Your desires led you into temptation. And your temptation led you into sin. God's not to blame because he gave you three barriers, three ways to fight that. First off, look at where sin's going to end. Second off, look how good God is. And third, you've been born again. You're above that. You're above that. And if you'll get ready to turn to James chapter 1 verse 19, and, and, and we'll, we'll get there too, but he, he kind of changes the, James sort of changes the, the, the formula for a moment. And in doing so, he, he begins to talk about deception and, and even uses this, this deceiving your own selves later. We'll find out this self-deception. Another place he says, he deceiveth his own heart. It is one thing for Satan to attempt to deceive you. But I have seen all too often that there is another matter that's far more serious. And that is when we began to deceive our own selves. One of the easiest ways that I could throw this out so that we could all get on the same page is when someone deceives themselves in thinking I'm saved when they're not. The Bible tells us in Matthew chapter 7 that many will say in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? In thy name have we not cast out devils? In thy name have we done many works? And then the Lord said, I will tell them back, I never knew you. Depart from me. What that means is we have to be honest with ourselves and look and examine ourselves and ask this question, am I saved? If not, you're, 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 there, there's a self-deception. People who think they're spiritual when they're not. Revelation chapter 3 verse 17 gives us a perfect example of an immature believer. It's when the person says, I'm rich and increased with goods and I have need of nothing. And if you go forward, you find out that they're really dirt poor and they need a whole lot of stuff. Can I tell you today that the mark of a mature Christian is one that's not afraid to pick up the mirror of God's word.
and to pick up the mirror of God's uh, own, uh, uh, who God is, and hold it in front of you, and ask that hard question, do I measure up to what the word says? That's the mark of a, of a mature Christian. God's word is truth, we know. And if we'll follow God's truth, then we'll grow. But we can also be hypocritical. We can also go, well, I don't know if that was talking about me. I'm, I'm probably okay. I'm, I'm probably good. I, I don't really need it. I'm okay. It's the person that's sick, that's coughing up a lung and says, I don't need a doctor. But what's your temperature? I don't know. I've never tested it. You know, you're feeling pretty hot. I know, but I, I, I figure if I test my temperature, I'll know that I'm sick. So I'm just not going to test my temperature, and that way I'm not sick. Pretty brilliant deductions, ain't it? There's three responsibilities that you and I have to the Word of God according to the book of James. And so I want you to turn with me to the book of James, chapter 1, verse 19. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. See, later on, we haven't got here yet, but you're going to find out in just two verses that James calls the word of God. He says it's the engrafted word, the implanted word. If you could, perhaps it is that he borrows from the, the, the parable of the sower that the Lord gave. And so uh, he's telling you, and, and I, I kind of think he is. This is. And remember from last week, James is most likely the Lord's brother. Stepbrother, obviously, but, but you know, the, the, uh, Mary and Joseph's son. And if you remember Jesus' parable of the sower, he described four kinds of hearts. The hard heart that never receives nor understands the word of God. The shallow heart that's very emotional, but it has no depth, no roots, and it bears no fruits. The crowded heart. That's the heart that lacks repentance and sin and worldliness comes in and it crowds out the word. And the fruitful heart, the one that heard the word, let the word sink in. Let the word take root and produces a harvest. And that's really what living for God is. At the end of your life, the question is going to be asked, were you fruitful? Go back to the fruits of the spirit. Go back to being fruitful in outreach. Were you fruitful? That's the final test of salvation. That's the final test of maturity. And so it is that the word of God cannot work if you don't first receive it. If you are starving to death and there is all the food in the world in front of you, you will starve to death with food right there because you never received it. It's not going to jump down you. You can't go to sleep at night and put the Bible under your pillow and hopefully in some form of osmosis it sinks in. You better hear the word and you better receive the word. You better read the word and you better receive the word. And so it is. That's why Jesus said, take heed what you hear. But he, that, That's Mark chapter 4. But he also said in Luke chapter 8, take heed how you hear. Jesus kind of put both of those together and talked about an awful situation where people, uh, uh, Matthew chapter 13 and verse 13, they are hearing, but they hear not, neither do they understand. 
Have you ever talked to anybody? And at this point, don't look at your spouse or anybody else in the church. But have you ever talked to somebody and they said, uh-huh, yeah, uh-huh, but they were not listening to anything you said? You're not looking at your wife. You're not looking at anybody else here, but we've all had that. It's the same with God. We'll hear the word, and we go, huh, yep, amen, amen, preach it, brother. But it never hits the understanding. And Hebrews chapter 5, verse 11, talks about it's, be, it's those that are dull of hearing. And dull of hearing produces a spiritual decay if we're not careful. So you've got to first receive the word. Now let's look at those. There, there was a few things that, that is said. It said, first, be swift to hear. Let every person be quick to hear. Jesus said, he that hath an ear, let him hear. Romans says, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Just as the servant is going to be quick to hear the master's voice or the mother quick to hear the baby's smallest cry, then you and I need to be quick to hear when God begins to speak to you. In David's life, and, and I just kind of, this is, if I can take a human experience and show you how you and I ought to be. In David's life, they were, 2 Samuel chapter 23 and verse 14, they were hiding from the Philistines. And, and David was kind of really just talking to himself. And, and the Philistines, they were in Bethlehem, and that was David's home. And that's where David wanted to be, but he couldn't get there. It was under their control. And David is just kind of sitting, and he said to himself, Oh, that I could have a drink of water from that well that I remember in Bethlehem. And if you read 2 Samuel chapter 23 and verse 15, three of his men heard it, didn't ask questions. It wasn't even a command to them. They just overheard it. And they took off and they, they, they I don't know how they did it, how they bypassed the centuries, but they got there and they brought David water back. They were swift to hear. And it needs to be the same when you're in a church service and the preacher is preaching and the word of God is going forth. It ought not take you a long time. Just catch it. Listen to what God has to say. When you're reading the word of God in your own devotions, you need to just catch it and let God's word speak to you. Be swift to hear and be slow to speak. What do they tell you? You've got two ears and one mouth. Listen. Listen. Too many times if not audibly for sure in our heart, our minds, we argue with God's word. God's word speaks to us and we're seeing it and we know what we ought to do, but instead we're, we've got this internal struggle and we're trying to argue it out. We're trying to find a loophole. But the writer of Proverbs says in Proverbs 10, he that refraineth his lips is wise. Proverbs 17 says, he that hath knowledge spareth his words. Do you remember? Do you remember... There was a, a lawyer in the Bible in, in Luke chapter 10, I believe, where, where they asked Jesus and they were tempting Jesus. They said, what is the greatest commandment? Things like that. And so Jesus said, well, love the Lord thy God with all the heart, soul, and strength. And he said, and love your neighbor as yourself. And if you catch on this, as soon as Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself, one of these lawyers goes, well, 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 who is my neighbor? Because he wanted to find a loophole. He wanted to find a way that he could say, he could, you know, say, well, I'm, I'm living, I'm, I'm okay then, because see, I've done that. It's the same with you and I. Be careful and listen. Be slow to speak and then be slow to anger. 
you don't get angry at God's words. You don't get angry at, at God. Uh, do you remember when the prophet Nathan found David and told David the story of that, that rich man and poor man and the stolen sheep and all of that? And David got so mad and David was, was, was ready to you know turn the kingdom upside down. And the prophet Nathan pointed his finger and said, you're the man that stole the lamb. David didn't get angry at God at that point. Instead, David fell to his knees and put his hands in his put his put his face in his hands and he said, I have sinned. I've sinned. He got angry. The uh, James later on in the book of James, it talks about some problems that were in the church. There was some fighting going on in, in the church that James was at there in Jerusalem. There was some arguing and some hard feelings going on. In the Garden of, uh, Garden of Gethsemane, rather, Peter, he, he was slow to hear, swift to speak, and swift to anger. The exact opposite of what James is saying. He, he pulls out a sword, uh, tries to kill somebody, and misses, and just slices off an ear. And Many times our fights, it's because we have short tempers and hasty words. You know, when we think of the word temper, we think of, of you know, someone getting mad and ready to fight and, you know, uh, a firecracker ready to go off. But actually, a temper is a very good thing. Have you ever, I must have taken it out of my pocket. It must be on my desk. I mean, my, my dad told me that every man he knows carries a knife. And so, later in life, I started carrying a knife. But I think I put it on my, on my, uh, my uh, desk in there. Have you ever had a cheap knife? Especially you men, you have a cheap knife, and, and it feels sharp at first, and then it never feels sharp ever again. It's because that knife didn't have a good temper. When, when you make a knife, when you make a knife, they take a piece of steel, and they're going to forge it out. And when they've got it all forged out the way they want it, uh, it it's a very soft steel. And so then, they and, and there's a lot of different ways, but the simplest way is you get the steel red hot, and you plunge it into oil, or sometimes water, but you better be careful, you better know what kind of steel you're dealing with. But you plunge it into oil, and it rapidly cools that steel. That's called the quench. But if you leave it at there, it's going to be hard as a rock. But if you dropped it, it'll shatter. It becomes hard like glass, and I've done that. I've done it in, in some of my, my blacksmith, and you, you can take it, and you can, you can drop it, and it will just shatter. And so there's a place called the temper. And the easiest way for a temper is you take the knife and you put it in an oven at a certain degree temperature that's required. And you gradually, very slowly get it to that temperature and you hold it for that temperature. Have you ever, any of you that's played around, you know, whether you've had a piece of steel and maybe a blowtorch, have you ever put a blowtorch on steel and watched the steel change colors? It had turned purple and then it had turned a little yellow. That's the temper. Depending on how you temper the steel depends on the use of a steel. A spring, the reason a spring can, can be, you, you think of some of those huge springs. The reason a spring can compress and decompress is because it's been tempered appropriately. It's got what they call a spring temper. It means that if you, if you want to know the color, they got that all the way up to a deep purple. But knives are usually about a straw color. It's usually about the uh, uh, yellow. But if you don't have a temper that's right, your knife will never hold an edge. And so don't think of temper as always being, you know, somebody ready to fly off at the, at the, at the drop of a hat. But instead, uh, there, there's a poster that's out there that says temper is such a valuable thing, it would be a shame to lose it. 
and you can lose a temper. You can, you can have your good knife and it get too hot and it loses its edge. See, the Bible says you need to be angry but sin not. A person who doesn't get angry at sin is a person that's not going to run away from sin. There ought to be a righteous indignation that comes up when temptation begins to come to you. There needs to be some anger at sin, but we better be careful that we don't take the anger and get angry at God's word or get angry at God's people. Because if you do, it's like a man who breaks the mirror because he didn't like the image that was in it. Be careful when you read God's word. So you need to be slow to speak, slow to anger. And then in verse 21 it says, Therefore put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. And again, he begins to pull your heart as if it's a garden. That if you leave the garden to itself, it's not going to grow good things. Weeds are going to come. And so instead it says, now the King James, if you use the King James, it says the superfluity of naughtiness. That's a word we don't really use. What that means is filthiness and rampant wickedness. You and I have got to take time in our heart and our soul to plow the word of God, to work through the word of God. You don't receive God's word into an unprepared heart. How do you prepare your heart? Well, first off, you confess your sins. Lord, I'm a sinner and I need your touch. Then you begin to meditate on God's love and grace, saying, Lord, how can I, how can I accept what you're saying? Plow up my ground. Jeremiah 4.3 says, break up your fallow ground. Don't sow among the thorns. James 21 says it's with meekness that we receive that implanted word. I don't twist the word to try to fit my own thinking. I say, Lord, let me receive what you're going to say. It's not enough just to receive the word, but you better practice the word. It's not enough just to hear the word. You've got to be a doer of the word. There's a lot of people that say, well, I went to church, I heard a good sermon, so I guess I'm going to be a good Christian. It's not the hearing, it's the doing. I heard one old preacher say there's a lot of people that mark up their Bibles, but never let the Bibles mark up them. We can underline all the words you want in the Bible, but if you don't let them start underlying things in your heart, then you are just kidding yourselves. Earlier, James said he compared the word to a seed But now in this paragraph that we're about to read, he compares it to a mirror. There's two other references in the Bible to God's word as a mirror. And when you put them all together, there's some incredible things you find. Let's look at verse 22. For those of you that are wanting to know, we're going to end at verse 27. That way you can can know how far we're going. Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if any man is a hearer of the word and not a doer, He is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and then goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. You know what the reason you own a mirror is for? It's for you to look into it and make sure there's nothing in your teeth. And make sure that you hit all the spots while you were shaving. And make sure you got the spot in the back of the hair that likes to fly up because you slept on it funny. 
the mirror was never there for you to just look at it and smile at yourself. It's for you to do something about it. Here in the book of James, James mentions several people who uses the mirror in a wrong manner. First, there's some that just simply glance. They don't study. They're, when they're reading the word, they're just trying to check off a box in some bread program. They, they, they're, they're not trying to profit from it. They're not seeing where am I in the midst of that Bible verse. And so it was that they would read, if you will, carelessly. Somebody said it's like the difference between a photo and an x-ray. A photo shows you what's on the top. An x-ray gets deeper. I need the word of God to take x-rays of my life. Lord, how am I? How am I doing? What am I, where, where do I need to be? What do I need to change? Lord, speak to me. Let your word, what does the word of God say? It says it's sharp and quick and, and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, dividing asunder the joints and the marrow. Exposing the inward parts. The second mistake that people do when they come to the mirror of God's word is they'll forget what they see. I've seen it too many times. Have a great service. People, the mirror of God is so powerful. They see themselves. They come to an altar. They weep and they cry. But when they leave, they forget what they saw. What the mirror told them they needed to change. And they never do something else. You need to be what Isaiah said when he said, Woe is me, for I'm undone. You need Peter who said in Luke chapter 5, Depart from me, I'm a sinful man. You need Job who they say was the most righteous man of his day, but yet he confessed, I hate myself and I need to repent in the dust and the ashes. Be careful that you don't just see what God wants you to do and then forget it. The third mistake that people do is they fail to obey what God's tell them to do. They think they can hear the word and be fine, but they never do the word. If you're going to use the mirror of God's word appropriately, then you can't just quickly glance. You've got to let that word soak in, that implanted word. You've got to give it some time and some attention. You've got to give it some sincere devotion. You've got to take time for the word of God to speak to you. If any of you have ever in your life, for whatever reason, if any of you have ever had some major health problems, you will understand the thankfulness you have when a doctor walks in and does a thorough exam. I've talked to people that have had long-term health issues and they say sometimes it gets to the point where it feels like nobody is really listening to what they're saying. The doctor comes in, checks the blood pressure, puts a thermometer under and all right, here's your medicine and there's never seeming an, an examination. I don't want that kind of a doctor. Don't get me wrong, I don't like the prodding and I don't like the poking and I don't like all the tests and all of that, but at the end of the day, I appreciate a thorough exam. I may not always at first be thankful for the Word of God that illuminates my deficiencies. I may get uncomfortable in the preacher's preaching and it's kind of rubbing me the wrong way and stepping on some toes, but at the end of the day, I am so thankful when God's word and the Lord himself takes time to examine. That examination is simply the first ministry of the word. The second is the restoration. The mirror of the word examines us, but it, it does more than reveal our sins. It also helps cleanse us of our sin. As you read the word and you meditate on the word and you study the word, it's cleansing your mind and heart 
that temptation and defilement that comes. But it doesn't stop there. It's not just the examination that we have in the Word. It's not just the restoration, but it's the transformation. I'm thankful that the Lord shows me I sin. And I'm thankful that the Lord can cleanse me of my sin. But the Word of God tells me I can be born again and be changed. And be changed. Be changed. The Bible says we ought to receive the Word. We ought to practice the Word. And then let's look at verse 26 and verse 27. The Bible says if any person thinks he's religious and doesn't bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, that person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their afflictions and to keep oneself unstained from the world. You want to live for God? Receive the word. Practice the word. And share the word. First one is the speech. Now later on, we're going to have a whole chapter almost on speech. So I'm not going to take a lot of time here, but... James was telling us that speech, what we say, our tongue reveals the heart. If the heart's right, the tongue will be right. And if you call yourself a Christian and you can't control your tongue, you're really not showing the grace and the love of God. The second thing is the service. After you and I have looked in the mirror of the Word and we've examined ourselves and we're allowing it to change us, Isaiah chapter 6, you have that where Isaiah said, I, I saw the Lord high and lifted up, his train filled the temple. And then he said, Oh, but woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of an unclean people. There is a, a, a linear uh, direction for this. The Word of God first must show you the glory of God. Second, it must show you yourself and you better get right with God. But third, you need to see a lost and dying world. And you know this, words, actions, what does what, what, what that old saying say? Actions speak louder than words. James is going to tell you that just saying you're a Christian and saying you love the world and saying you love God and saying you love people doesn't really matter if you don't do it. And so here he talks about your service. And later on, we'll get into it. He says, you ought to be helping your neighbor. You ought to be helping this world. And then, last but not least, for chapter 1, and this is where we'll end, and I'm going to invite you to stand. He said that a pure religion is first to have that service, to love others. But second, this is the last part of 27, verse 27. And to keep oneself unstained from the world. By the world right here, James meant a society without God. James says that, or rather the book of John rather says we're in this world but we're not of this world. And a little bit later John says that we're sent into this world to bring others to Christ. Romans teaches us that we need to be careful that we not be conformed to this world because if you're ever conformed to this world you're going to be uh, condemned with this world Lot is a perfect example 
Lot got real close to Sodom and Gomorrah. The Bible first tells us that Lot, he pitched his, his, his tent, his encampment on the plains where he could look at, at Sodom. Later on, Sodom is, Lot moves into Sodom. He's living in Sodom. And not very long after that, Sodom moves and lives in Lot. And when that happens, Lot lost his testimony. When the angels came and, and, and Lot was willing to give up the angels to them, or, or willing to give his, his virgin daughters to those heathen men of Sodom and Gomorrah, you find that Lot had lost his testimony. When judgment fell, Lot lost everything. The only thing he escaped out of, and to be honest, after, after that, I don't even know where Lot ends up. He lost his wife, his girls do awful things. But it's Abraham, the separated believer, the friend of God, whose ministry was far greater than what Lot did. And I'm going to tell you today that it is absolutely imperative that we love the people. It's absolutely imperative that we have a burden for souls. But you better be careful. The world doesn't grab hold of you. Jesus was able to go eat at a publican's house, but he kept himself unspotted with the sins of the publican. He was a friend of the sinners, but he did not get involved in their sins. And James, as he's leading us, remember this is all talking about, it's, it's just practical understanding, how to live for God, how to be mature. James says, well, you need to love people, but you better keep yourself pure from the defilement of this world this world later on we'll get into some other things but I think this would be a good place to stop for us we've, we've, we've heard a lot of things and if you didn't catch it all you can go back and watch it or listen to it but James is simply helping you and I understand this is how you can make sure you're growing in God's grace I wonder if we could just lift our hands for a moment and just let the presence of God speak to you in whatever way you see fit. You're praying for yourself, not the one around you, not the one beside you, not anything of there. Lord, I'm asking right now that, Lord, your word has been placed in front of me, a mirror of the word. I have heard the word, and I see the word. Now, God, I must act upon what I have seen and what I have heard. I must do it. Lord, if ever there's a deficiency, I ask that you would let me change it. If there's anything here that I'm not measuring up to, God, I'm asking that you would cleanse me. Because, Lord, I want to live for you. I want it to be said that I had a pure religion, that I was, I was a mature Christian. And I'm going to give you praise in Jesus' name for everything and forever. And I ask that you would bless this congregation as we go forth. Would you lead us into all truth, lead us into all understanding. And we give you great praise in Jesus' name.